I like how you are just calling Stephen Fry the host. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think you've mentioned it once that the Stephen Fry. <laughs> Film Kids Giant Squids. And other things that think they're deep. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Brooke. And this week we're talking about Slumdog Millionaire and St. Trinians. Hey, Linz. Yeah? What game show would you want to be on if you had to go, like, earn money to save your school slash your life? Okay, obviously Big Brother. Do I think (laughs) I'd win that? Absolutely not. Something that I could win? Oh, God. You know, when I was a teen, I desperately wanted to be on the, like, I don't remember, what was Guts? Oh, Ooh, okay, mountain? I'm changing my answer to Legends of the Hidden Temple. The the new one? I meant the old one. I didn't realize the new one was real. The new one's real, it's releasing, and adults are on it, so you Ooh, arguably have okay, a chance. here's my chance. <laughs> <laughs> but before we can get into game shows, we gotta do, you know what, I can make this a game show, it won't work, but we could try a 127 oh hour game <laughs> 127 game shows with a film kid. <laughs> 127 hours with an film kid. Very brief IOTC update just to like close out that chapter. The contracts were ratified by the union. If you don't know what we're talking about at this point, we talk about IOTC and these unions, the contracts and all that. Go listen to older episodes, man. I'm You'll figure it out. But the contracts that were created in negotiations were then brought back to the union, and the union did ratify them, barely, but they did it. <laughs> in fact, so barely that it failed in the popular vote, but the electoral oh vote passed it. Boo. Because democracy is a sham. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I am very excited about this just because this is going to be much like the... Shower, the shower debate. no. <laughs> Except this isn't as terrible because there's no discussion of basic hygiene. Still a little worried, but okay. <laughs> this started when Variety did an interview with Jane Campion, who is a filmmaker, like an Oscar-winning director, who is directing the upcoming Power of Dog. And in a Variety interview, she was asked about how she felt about superhero movies, which then led to... The Washington Post putting out an opinion article entitled, Please Stop Asking Film Directors About Marvel Movies. <laughs> Which basically was just the columnist Sunny Bunch. Great name, by the way. Sunny Bunch. <laughs> and just being like, hey, please, journalists, please stop asking auteurs the Marvel question. Like, it doesn't do anyone good. Like, even if they're pro-Marvel, anti-Marvel, no matter their stance, it doesn't do anyone good. Like, it's just bad. It just is always going to set off a firestorm and, like, leads to, like, more hate both directions. And it just doesn't do anyone good. So stop asking it. So I thought we would do, do you think this auteur director is pro or anti Oh my god. Marvel superhero <laughs> movies. We're gonna start with Jane. Jane Campion, like I said, is doing the upcoming Power of Dog, and it's getting so much Oscar buzz. Benedict Cumberbatch, there's a lot of buzz oh, that he's going to get a nom. Yeah, it's a western, it's upcoming, it'll probably get a nom for directing and best picture. If you want to, like, be able to know what you're talking about in your office Oscar pool, go watch Power yeah. of the Dog. Oh my god, I should make an office Oscar pool. We only have election pools. <laughs> So, do you think Jane is pro or anti-superhero movies? If you make westerns, I feel like you have to like superhero movies, so pro. Eh. Ugh. 
Her quote is, I hate them. They're so noisy and, like, ridiculous. Sometimes you get a good giggle, but I don't know what the thing is with the capes. A grown man in tights. I feel like it must come from That's how I feel about westerns. (laughs) But instead of capes, just replace it with authority. (laughs) I, like, processed what you said a beat late. (laughs) I, like, I thought you were going to say, like, cowboy boots. And instead you said authority. (laughs) (laughs) Next. Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott, we've talked about. He directed Alien. We've talked about that film on this podcast. Do you think he's pro or anti-superhero films? Is he pro video games or did Metroid just do that? Like, unrelated to him approving or disapproving? I mean, Metroid just did that. (laughs) Okay. I'm still going to say he's pro video games or he would have sued or something. So I'm going to say pro because superheroes are kind of like video i feel like the people that like video games and superheroes as a circle uh, you're okay i hope he specifically was like i like video games but not superheroes no and everyone's like we didn't ask you that okay also to be fair so he did an interview with deadline because he's currently promoting his upcoming film house of gucci which stars adam driver and lady gaga it looks incredible and i do want to go oh, see okay, that okay and they started talking about his next film, which is called Kitbag, which is going to be about Napoleon. And basically, the Deadline interviewer was like, hey, like, you always talk about how much you like Stanley Kubrick. Like, Kubrick did or was trying to do a Napoleon thing and it didn't work. Like, why do you think you're better than him? I'm really paraphrasing here. (laughs) (laughs) Ridley Scott was like, okay, Stanley was trying to do the entire story of Napoleon, like, from birth to death, and he would have filmed birth to death, and it would have been terrible, and it would only have been, once he filmed it all, that he realized how terrible it would have been. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, trying to tell that story from start to finish is boring. Most war films are boring. Like, no matter what you're doing, like, how majestic it is, how many uniforms, it gets boring. And then the interviewer did not bring it up. Ridley Scott brought it upon himself. To come out against superhero films. Like, <laughs> yeah. Everyone else was specifically asked. Ridley Scott was like, no, I need to make my stance known. So he's like talking about like how war films get boring and like how he narrowed it down for his upcoming film. And it's quote, almost always the best films are driven by characters. And we'll come to superheroes after this if you want. Because I'll crush it. I'll fucking crush it. They're fucking boring as shit. But he'd make a good one. Is that what he's saying? The interviewer goes, okay, what's your, like, main issue with them? And Ridley Scott says, quote, their scripts are not any fucking good. I've done three great scripted superhero movies. Alien with Sigourney Weaver, fucking Gladiator, and one would be Harrison Ford. And Deadline steps in to be like, Blade Runner. Like, I, like, I understand they're trying to say, like, he's referring to Blade Runner, but it's like, Blade Runner, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you think that Ridley Scott forgot the name of his own film? He then goes on to say, there's superhero movies, so why don't the superhero movies have better stories? I got off the rail, but I mean, come on. They're mostly saved by special effects, and that's becoming boring for everyone who works in special effects, if you've got the money. So he's not anti-superhero movies, he's anti-modern superhero movies. He's like, the ones I've done are good, even though I would not say Alien is a superhero movie. I wouldn't say any of those are superhero movies. What? I guess I've never (laughs) seen Blade Runner. (laughs) I really wouldn't say it's a superhero, but like... it's the closest, Whatever, I would say. Scott. I'm just like, all right, man, those aren't. So, like, is he anti Ragnarok? Because I feel like that's like an offbeat kind of superhero movie. I mean, he didn't like specifically of comment. He didn't specifically all right. comment. <laughs> People need to ask. Again, the interviewer did not bring up superhero <laughs> movies. <laughs> like, he wasn't trying to find out how Ridley Scott felt about superhero movies. Ridley Scott was like, no, everyone else gets asked. I want to make oh my, my stance known. <laughs> 
next, I want to talk about Denis Villeneuve, who just did Dune. I feel like I'm going to go three for three wrong, but pro. You don't make Dune if you're anti-superhero movies. Oh, no. So he did an interview with El Mundo. He, again, you would think, Dune, you would like a superhero movie. Lends itself to superheroes. In the translated quote, so this could be horribly translated who is to say he says quote perhaps the problem is that we are in front of too many marvel movies that are nothing more than a cut and paste of others perhaps these types of movies have turned us into zombies a bit Ooh, all right y'all dc movies exist the rob pattinson batman is soon to come all right (laughs) i'm sure that will be amazing (laughs) i mean at least rob won't be ripped because he refused to get ripped (laughs) Which is so good. It's so funny. And I would kill. When they, like, specifically asked if Kristen Stewart would play the Joker, and she was like, please stop asking me about it. And also, like, (laughs) there are more interesting villains than the Joker. Let me be something interesting. And now I would kill to see her play any kind of villain in a Batman. Next up, Martin Scorsese. Now, we haven't covered Martin on the podcast yet, but we will eventually. His most recent film was The Irishman which was that, like, eight-hour-long film on Netflix that, oh. Okay, anti. Correct. Nice. (laughs) Is the joke gonna be that they're all anti? (laughs) No, there are some pros here. (laughs) He gave an interview while promoting The Irishman to Empire that said, quote, I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. And then him calling it not cinema, like, really kind of sparked the asking them, Marvel question because his response, like, it went viral. Everyone was responding to him calling superhero films not cinema. So then he ended up doing an op-ed for the New York Times where he, like, didn't take back his stance, but he, like, elaborated on it and just said, quote, the fact that the films themselves don't interest me is a matter of personal taste and temperament. I know that if I were younger, if I'd come of age at a later time, I might have been excited by these pictures and maybe even wanted to make one myself. But, like, to me, that's just, like, yeah, if I was dumb and, like, underdeveloped, maybe I would like that. Like, he's like, but I've got taste. Ugh, that's an even worse answer than just no. <laughs> Let's talk about James Gunn. So James Gunn directed the Guardians of the Galaxy series and also, most recently, the Suicide Squad. Okay, he's gonna be anti because for the bit. You are correct. Nice! <laughs> I mean, it's not a bit, though. So, while promoting the Suicide Squad, he did... An interview with the Irish Times. I, mean, I guess to call him like anti superhero, he's kind of more like the Ridley Scott of like, they're boring now. He basically says that like the superhero film will die out soon if it doesn't change. He says, quote, we know the way the cowboy films went and the way war films went. I don't know. I don't think you have to be a genius to put two and two together and see that there's a cycle to these sorts of film, you know? And the only hope for the future of comic book and superhero films is to change them up. They're really dumb and mostly boring for me right now. So. Does he think that his own are, are good? Because he changes it up. To be fair, was the second Guardians changed up? The first Guardians is just a good movie. Next, Taika Watiti, who directed Jojo Rabbit. Pro. You are correct. And Ragnarok. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he directed Thor Ragnarok. He also is directing the upcoming Thor. Uh, like Love Ooh. and something. Love and... It's like Love and Stone or Love and Thunder. That's like... <laughs> Why is it so sensual? It's love and thunder. (laughs) Why? Why is he like a summer home, like, magazine name? (laughs) His comments were in response to Martin Scorsese being like, superhero films 
are not cinema. Basically, all he said was, quote, of course it's cinema. It's at the movies near you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's so good. (laughs) He likes the superhero movie. In 2017, when he was doing press for Thor Ragnarok, I think, he was asked, like, hey... As these franchises, like, as Marvel is really getting into their later films, like, their established films, like, what do you think the biggest obstacle for new filmmakers, like, you coming into this? And he says that, it like, the hardest thing is keeping your voice heard throughout the film and says, for me, it's all I had because I am not a superhero movie director. Well, I guess I am now, but coming into it, all I had was the stuff I had experienced, which is scenes where people talk a lot. Luckily for me, it wasn't a fight, but the biggest challenge is retaining the stuff that make you the director you are. So it's your version of a Marvel film rather than it being Thor with your name on it. That's funny. (laughs) I just liked him being like, oh, I guess I am a superhero movie director. (laughs) Next up, let's talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. Anti. So yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson, we've covered before. He did Phantom Thread. He has the upcoming film Licorice Pizza. Ugh. You said anti? Yeah. You are incorrect. He is pro. <gasps> no. <laughs> you can't be that much of an asshole and be pro superhero movies. This is your chance to rag. <laughs> rock. I hate it. <laughs> I say he's pro, but like, he's, he's not just as... anti Martin Scorsese's comment. No, he's not even that. He was just basically asked recently, like, because he's doing press for his upcoming film licorice pizza like i said and so someone asked him what movies are you liking right now like what are you watching like what are you liking and he basically was like i live in a marvel obsessed household so continuing the journeys of these marvel stories is exciting to us and then was like shang chi was good fun there's terrific energy and then goes i also liked venom (laughs) 2 and so those were the two films that he called out of being his favorite right now venom (laughs) 2 Okay. <laughs> he then also, like, famously, Paul Thomas Anderson has spoken about, like, a film school professor who badmouthed Terminator 2. That really pissed him off. He was like, absolutely not. I don't want to be here if this professor's going to badmouth my favorite film. Oh, my God. He, like, has, like, come out in the past pro... Like, blockbusters? Yeah, like, in 2015 when he was doing Inherent Vice promotion the interviewer was like what do you think of the state of movies today do you like like do you agree with the complaints about american filmmaking being nothing but superhero movies and he responded quote that's such a fucking crock of shit i can't remember a year in recent memory where there's less complaints about the quality of movies and what's wrong with superhero movies you know i don't know you're talking to someone that enjoys watching those films people need to get a life if they're having that discussion those movies get a bad rap so like (laughs) He likes superhero movies a lot. <laughs> like, okay, I have, a, I have a tinge of a newfound respect right? for him. <laughs> I'm like, damn but it. But just a tinge. And then you remember Phantom Thread. And then you remember <laughs> Phantom Thread. And like anything else he's done. I like hate how much I respect Edgar Wright because Edgar Wright really likes licorice pizza. And I'm like, oh, I guess I need to go see it. Ugh, fine. <laughs> right? Speaking of Edgar Wright... Edgar Wright. Pro. Gray area. Oh, okay. I was like, you can't make Scott Pilgrim and be anti. So that's the thing, is he made Scott Pilgrim and then was attached to direct Ant-Man. Uh, <laughs> that would have been amazing. And, like, went through casting, like, was doing a lot of the prep, like, was, like, very much was going to direct it and then... And then was like, oh, no, I hate superhero movies. No, it was just creative differences with Kevin Feige. He ended up walking, like, quitting Ant-Man. And so, like, he is still pro-superhero movies, but he's like, I don't think I would ever make one. 
<laughs> like a Marvel film because of I the quit. politics. Okay. Yeah. He did recently, so in February, he did an issue with Empire that was dedicated to the greatest cinema moments of all time. Edgar Wright, like, this was, like, his idea of the issue, and he personally reached out to, like, a lot of, like, the famous directors that he knew and, like, famous, like, actors and whatnot to have them recount their most memorable theater-going experience. So, like, it would be, like, I don't know, people who weren't in the film, like, recount going to see a different film. And, like, yeah. but, like, still be, like, famous filmmakers or famous actors. He reached out to Kevin Feige, who recounted seeing aliens in theater, and he then went on a podcast of the Empire podcast and basically was like, that was the first time I talked to Kevin since... 2014 there wasn't any animosity between us when I left but like we just went our separate ways and there was no reason to get back in touch so I'd never spoken to him and like vice versa like aside from the movie itself we'd been friends so it was a sad thing aside from the professional aspect of it we had been good pals but like when putting together the Empire issue he was like you can't not talk about Marvel like you have to talk about Marvel because yeah. like, so many people on Twitter would be like my favorite movie experience was when, like, Captain America picked up Thor's hammer or blah, blah, blah. Like, mm-hmm. And so he was like, you can't not address it. So I would absolutely kill for an Edgar Wright superhero movie, is what I'm saying. Especially if he made an insect-adjacent one for you. Oh, it'll be so good. Alejandro Inaritu, the guy who directed Birdman. Pro. Wrong. Ugh. In 2014, while doing promotion for Birdman, he condemned superhero films. Oh my god. Calling them poison and cultural genocide. Oh my god. It's a lot. He hates them. <laughs> Last <Damn>. but not <laughs> least, Bong Juno, the director of Parasite. Pro. I can't imagine him being anti anything. Well, <laughs> like he's not anti superhero films, he's anti himself. Oh. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> That's worse than my statement of I can't can't imagine him being anti-anything. Being self-deprecating is so much worse. I love his comment. So he, this was while doing press for Parasite, he did an interview with Deadline in which he said, quote, I respect the creativity that goes into superhero films, but in real life and in movies, I can't stand people wearing tight-fitting clothes. I'll never wear something like that. And just seeing someone in tight clothes is mentally difficult. You don't have to I don't do know where that. to look, and I feel <laughs> You're suffocated. You're directing! <laughs> and he says, most superheroes wear tight suits, so I can never direct one. I don't think anyone will offer the project to me either. If there is a superhero who has a very boxy costume, maybe I can try. <laughs> Why does he have to wear the clothes? <laughs> He has to look at it, even looking at someone in tight clothes. Oh my god. <laughs> Mentally difficult. Just direct it all without looking. No direction, just vibes. No directing, just vibes. Yeah, that would be terrible. I'm just like <laughs> trying to physically imagine the director not looking. <laughs> he can only do like the rehearsal when they aren't in costumes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino was, he wasn't asked. He basically was like, <laughs> Hollywood is at war. <laughs> With, like, franchise films like that. He's like, and Once Upon a Time, Hollywood won. I was like, all right, Tarantino. All right. So I kind of agree with the op-ed that, like, why are we asking these awards? Why are we asking them that? A lot of these people will never be in the situation to direct a superhero film. Like, ask Edgar Wright. Like, will you ever go back (laughs) to Marvel? I want to know. 
But like Martin Scorsese will never direct one. Why are we asking? Oh, I will say my actual favorite response to asking Jane Campion about whether or not she would direct a superhero film was Twitter user Charlie Ashby created a fake variety tweet that is variety like update alfred hitchcock will never direct a superhero movie quote i'm dead (laughs) (laughs) good (laughs) oh that just made me laugh a lot (laughs) i don't know why we're asking these auteur filmmakers about their superhero stance no but if you find yourself in conversation with a film kid name any single director you know and ask them whether or not they think they'd direct a superhero movie honestly that is a fun thought experiment (laughs) but chances are the answer is already out there somewhere on the internet And I didn't say them all. There's a couple of that. I was like, Lindsay doesn't know who that director is. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to skip it. That is 127 Hours of the Film Kid. Go play thought experiments with your local film kid today. Some dog Millionaire. My shitty tweet summary is a boy changes his life and makes history in order to get a girl's attention. I feel like this is one of the few times that our tweets are like about wildly different parts of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is the producers of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire force a kid to talk about his trauma, which is brought to light by weirdly targeted Who Wants to Be a Millionaire questions that coincide perfectly with his childhood trauma. So, Slumdog Millionaire was released in 2008 in the United States. I think 2009, technically, elsewhere. It was directed by Danny Boyle off of a screenplay by Simon Beaufoy. So, it was based off of a novel called Q&A by Vikas Swaroop. The screenwriter wrote Slumdog Millionaire based on the novel... And he, like, went to India several times as, like, research for writing this script and said, quote, I wanted to get across the sense of this huge amount of fun, laughter, chat, and sense of community that is in these slums. What you pick up on is this massive energy. Celador Films then signed on as producers, and Celador is a British film company, and they also make Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh, that's funny. In the book Q&A, it's not Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or the, like, official Indian adaptation of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, because it's not called that in India. It's just a fictitious quiz show program. But when Celador signed on, it was obviously going to be Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. (laughs) They were like, what a perfect adaptation for us to market our (laughs) quiz show. (laughs) Yeah. So they reached out to Danny Boyle to direct the film. And Boyle kind of was like, no, fuck this. This is just like product placement. I don't, (laughs) not going to do it. (laughs) He said the same thing as my joke. (laughs) (laughs) And then he learned who was writing the script and who had previously written The Full Monty, which is apparently one of Boyle's absolute favorite film so he was like all right let me at least read the script and ultimately really liked how simon had adapted the novel and signed on to be the director i like that he fanboyed himself into being okay with product placement (laughs) yeah (laughs) through like pre-production the film like they got to be like okay we're gonna need 15 million dollars to produce this film so the british producers sought an american distributor to help out like to buy the distribution rights in america to help with the costs and warner independent pictures which was like a offshoot of warner brothers they signed on for exclusive u.s distribution rights for five million dollars 
The film got into casting. Boyle hired several casting directors, one of which was Loveline Tandon, who, like, oversaw a lot of, like, the Indian-specific, like, not only just casting, but, like, getting the crew and such. She also suggested that part of the film should be in Hindi to, quote, bring the film alive. And Danny and Simon were like, absolutely, that's a really smart point. Like, you should write the dialogue because we don't speak Hindi. Like, you're fluent. (laughs) Boyle also then straight up lied to Warner Independent. Nice. (laughs) He was like, oh yeah, like, at most, 10% of the film's gonna be in Hindi. Like, barely anything. And so they approved the script changes, and it ultimately was, like, closer to 30% of the film was in Hindi. Nice. (laughs) So then as the shoot date, like, got closer and they were working through prep, Boyle ultimately asked Loveline to come on as co-director, like, especially for, like, the, like, Indian, like, in the slums and stuff. Like, that was really what he was, like, she knows this place. She knows how to make it appear on film. Loveline, like, in interviews has always spoken really highly of Danny Boyle and basically been, like, he was the real genius. Like, I was just so honored to work with him. Like, yeah, like, I got co-director, but, like, it was not my vision. Like, it was his vision that I was just so, like, happy to, like, bring to life. This is, like, such a cute little friendship that they have. You're <laughs> going to, like, say being... something tragic in the next sentence. You're going to be like, and then <laughs> and then something that problematic said... happened. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's not necessarily problematic on Danny Boyle's behalf, but for, like, the DGA Awards, like, any kind of nomination, Loveling was not ever on any ballot. And he didn't, like, con the other people into bringing her on like he did Warner Brothers. He's not like, I accept this award, but also, Loveling, come up with me. <laughs> it is also yours. I mean, she was on stage when they won Best Picture, but for the most part, no. He, like, mentioned her and, like, definitely, like, gave her credit, but, like, it was not... And, like, she has said, like, in interviews, like, she's not, like, she doesn't feel slighted for that. Like, she was, like, he was the director. I just was assisting kind of a thing. But, like, a lot of people were, like, especially at this time when, like, a woman hadn't won Best Director yet, a Hurt Locker would have won a year later. But, yeah, so, like, there was kind of some uproar, especially among, like, women critics being, like, why isn't she at least, like, allowed to be on the ballot? For the most part, I mean, like, Loveline herself is, like, I shouldn't have been on the ballot, so. (laughs) Cinematography was by Anthony Dodd Mantle, and he used primarily digital cinematography rather than film. It was one of the first films to take advantage of this specific digital camera, this SI2K digital camera, and then also became the first film to win Best Cinematography, like the Oscar for Best Cinematography for Digital Film was the first. Was digital film just that new or was it just that people were like, I'm better than this? A little bit of both. Okay. (laughs) It was like used, but like a lot of filmmakers didn't like how polished it looked or like didn't like the look of it. Like a lot of filmmakers just weren't adopting it yet. But Danny Boyle was a huge adopter of digital film. His previous film, 28 Days Later. So 28 Days Later was like a zombie apocalypse film that Danny Boyle directed like five years before. Slumdog, and he, like, used digital, and that was a big, like, we have to use digital here, like, to get the effects. So, like, right around the time that the film wrapped production, Warner Independent got shut down. (laughs) Why? Did they just run out of money? Yeah. I mean, these things get, like, merged all the time and, like, bought and ended. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Things get terminated frequently. (laughs) 
Warner Brothers ended up getting all of their films, obviously, because Warner Brothers is the parent company. And Warner Brothers looked at Slumdog Millionaire and was like, this is not going to do well commercially at all in the States. Like, this is is gonna tank. And basically scrapped all plans to release it theatrically in the United States. They were like, no, this is going straight to DVD. Like, we're not putting this in theaters. Have they seen Dev Patel? By the way, Dev Patel wasn't the original actor that was going to play Jamal. Oh my god. <laughs> but they decided to recast when they were like, oh, the guy who, I don't even know who it was, but the guy who was originally cast was apparently too conventionally attractive. <laughs> I'm like, why are you dissing Dev Patel so much? <laughs> yeah, this is like when he was, during like interviews for The Green Knight, he was like talking about like, Oh, like on Skins, I was always like known as the unattractive one, and like which that makes hurts, no man. sense to me. <laughs> like, who isn't attracted to Dev Patel? <laughs> like, yeah, I think he even said something that was like, "Oh, like I was known as the ugly one," which is like that wasn't even like my character. That was people just like that they were referring to yeah. me. <laughs> I'm like, no. If you don't think Dev Patel is conventionally attractive, you're just you're incorrect. That's the take of our podcast. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Dev Patel now, everyone is like, that man is hot, right? I feel like he's, like, conventionally attractive now. I don't know. Like, I, I, there's so many things that I'm like, I don't know if that's me and my friends or if that's the world. Mm. Like, I don't know if I just befriended people based on their attraction to Dev Patel or if everyone's attracted to Dev Patel, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Not as, like, a forward, like, this is how I'm seeking my friends. It's like, oh, this is the underlying why we're all yeah, friends. Yeah, this is the vibe, yeah. <laughs> this is the good the vibe The vibe is Dev Patel's hot. <laughs> it's a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, it's better that than, like, bonding over, like, people that you dislike and then you realize that your entire friendship is just, like, having to constantly be negative and overcome that and there's no way to overcome that, like, shared negativity. Yay. Instead... Why be negative when there's Dev Patel to look at? <laughs> they were just gonna be, go straight to DVD. And then a few months later, Warner Brothers were basically like reevaluating their entire slate because they now, after like gaining all the Warner Independent picture films, they're like, we have way too many films coming out. And so they started to try and sell some theatrical rights to like get some money. And Fox Searchlight bought the rights for 50% of what Warner Brothers put in. So they got for like 2.5 million, which is why you see the Fox Searchlight and Warner Brothers pictures at the beginning of the film. And so Fox Searchlight ended up distributing the film in the United States. So it did get a theatrical run, which means it was eligible for the Oscars. And the film did so well after the Oscars. Like the week after the Oscars, it made something like 16 million. And had been out at that point for like six months. Was it just like they didn't really market it, so no one really heard of it, and then they heard about it, like it won an Oscar, and then people heard about it then, and then everyone watched it? Okay, well, it won eight Oscars. <laughs> oh, sorry. It won I didn't so watch many. the Oscars that year. <laughs> I specifically remember, because I feel like that might have been one of the first years I like did a bracket, and I hadn't seen Slumdog Millionaire, so I didn't pick it for anything. And then I got so annoyed about how many Oscars <laughs> they were winning. <laughs> Because they were nominated yeah. for 10 and won 8. Like, it was wow. really impressive. I don't know if my... No, because my parents rented it on DVD. I think they were one of the people that, like, watched it post-Oscars after it won everything. I was about to turn 12 and my parents rented it. They were like, it's rated R. Like, this is too mature for you. You can't watch it. And I was so mad. And then to this <laughs> day, never watched it until now. 
but like immediately after my mom was like oh like that was fine like you could have watched it like i don't know why i didn't let you you can still watch our dvd rental but i'm not gonna watch it again and i was like well i'm not gonna watch it now i'm too mad (laughs) i refused to watch it because it ruined my bracket and i'm really bitter about it (laughs) meanwhile i just watched skins which should i have watched at 12 yeah (laughs) questionable (laughs) skins is 100 percent more A lot. It is a lot. A lot happens in that show. (laughs) So it did incredibly well after the Oscars, and it is now the highest grossing Fox Searchlight film. It's, like, up there with Black Swan and Juno. Like, those three are, like, they're big wins. Like I said, it was nominated for ten Oscars, won eight. It won for Best Picture. Danny Boyle won for Best Directing. Simon won for Best Adapted Screenplay. It won Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, the Jai Ho at the end one, and for Best Sound Mixing. It was highly acclaimed by critics outside of India. However, Indian critics were not as universally praising of this film. A lot of them critiqued that it was like disparaging it like didn't really give the right outlook of India and or Gopal Krishnan who is a like a filmmaker in the 1980s and 1990s he won like the best director of the Indian National Film Awards several times he absolutely hated this film calling it quote a very anti-Indian film all the bad elements of Bombay's commercial cinema are put together in a very slick way and it underlines and endorses what the West thinks about us. It is falsehood built upon falsehood, and at every turn is fabricated. I was ashamed to see it, and it was being appreciated widely in the West. Fortunately, Indians are turning it down. Wow. So that's that. And now we can get into the film. So we open on Jamal, who is a contestant on the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and is one question away from the grand prize, and then the audience is asked a question. How did he do it? A, he cheated. B, he's lucky. C, he's a genius. Or D, it is written. Which, like, the whole, like, it is written thing comes up several times. I'm like, this is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it. What was that supposed to Like, fate? Ugh, boo. Yeah, and I was like, (laughs) bad. We see, like, them, him, like, enter the stage for the first time, cut with him being detained and tortured by the police, who believe he is cheating. After one cop, like, electrocutes him and almost kills him, Jamal is just like, I knew the answers. The cop then, like, puts him down in front of a TV and plays back his performance on the show, and Jamal begins to recite, like, how he knew the answer. It's also funny because the first one is just, like, more or less who was one of the most famous actors in India. And they're yeah. like, how did you know this? To be fair, they don't because they're like, anyone would know that. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah. So yeah, the first question is like, who is the star of this one film? And we see Jamal at five years old, trapped in the outhouse while his brother like put a chair there and like goes and sees the star arrive. And Jamal jumps down into the actual pile of shit to go get the oh. autograph. Which, by the way, like, the shit that's on him is, like, a combination of chocolate and peanut butter. I don't like that. (laughs) It makes me feel better because, like, you know, the kid enjoys it. But also, like, the smell of peanut butter doesn't come off. I know you don't know that because you can't (laughs) smell. The smell of, like, trying to wash peanut butter off of stuff is, like, horrendous and it does not leave your brain. I didn't look super into it, but I did see a couple things that were kind of, like, things that were referencing that, like, the child actors that they used 
because it was weird. Some things would be like, oh, there was some, like, media criticism of how, like, much they got paid and how they were treated. Not, like, how they were treated on set, but, like, how they, like, just, like, left them type thing. Like, it was, like, a very weird thing, so I didn't look into it a lot. And if there was a controversy about that, I am sorry, but it wasn't on the Wikipedia page, so I didn't actually look into it. Were they, like, a American actors or Indian no, actors? No, they were Indian actors. And, like, like, one article I was reading was saying that, like, Danny Boyle, like, set up a trust fund for them so they wouldn't like have access to the money till they turned 16 and then another thing i read was like oh because it was because it like wasn't it wasn't like a real source so like i didn't know how like accurate or if it was this one person's like opinion but it was like basically like critiquing the filmmakers and the producers for like not paying them enough and being like the kids who did live in slums like then like finished filming went back to the slums and i was like where else would they go yeah but anyway that's just a thing but jamal like gets out of this pile of shit runs the actor signs the photo of him and then his brother salim sells it because older brothers are always dicks that is the real moral of the story the next question is about the national emblem of india which jamal does not know and uses his audience lifeline and the cop was just like, how the fuck do you not know that? Like, any five-year-old would know that. Jamal's just kind of like, look, you don't know my life, bro. Like, back off. The next question then asks, what does the god Rama hold in their hand? And we see then the Bombay riots where Jamal and Salim's mother dies. And Jamal and Salim flee and make it out of the riots. And that night, they see Latika. And Jamal suggests that, like, oh, she could be our third musketeer. And Salim's like, absolutely not. Leave her in the cold and the rain. And Jamal's like, no, she's gonna sleep in here. And invites her into their, like, boxcar thing? Um, <laughs> shipping container. I like that they never bothered to look up the Yeah, they're the like, she one. could be the third musketeer. <laughs> because and he and his like, brother no. constantly <laughs> refer to themselves as the names of the other two. Yeah. <laughs> he, like, he knows the first two. So then the next question asks, which poet wrote this one song? We then see the kids being found by Maman and, like, having them bring to his compound. Which, by the way, like, he hands them, like, bottles of Coke to, like, lure them. And, fun fact, Coke was like, hey, you cannot use our brand. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, they're very clearly bottles of Coke, but if you look, there's no actual Coke branding on it. That's funny. This movie's nothing but branding. Supposedly, Coke, they said that, like, production didn't reach out to them to get approval, which is why they said no. But also, I feel like having a gangster hand bottles of Coke to lure kids is not a good look for the brand. (laughs) The other one is Mercedes-Benz also said, you cannot use our branding for this. You can't use our logo in the film. Because the gangster, Javid, like, he drives a Mercedes-Benz and... They were fine with the car being, like, in the mansion, like, being driven around by a gangster. What they weren't fine with was the car being driven through the slums. <laughs> Why? Because that associates it with the slums and they're a high-quality, high-expensive brand. Oh, my God. Just pretend that production didn't reach out to you, Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are brought to the compound where they're, like, trained to be, like, professional beggars. One night, Salim is forced to help as Maman blinds one of the kids to make them more effective. He then escapes with Jamal and, like, Latika runs after them, too. And they make it to the train and the boys get on board, but Salim purposely drops Latika's hand because, again, older brothers are dicks. We then get a montage set to the most 2009 song <laughs> as they're living on trains, pickpocketing, selling, like, tourist Oh, little... is that the, like, I fly like paper, get high yeah. like planes song? <laughs> I laughed <Yeah>. at that. <laughs> 
I was like, of course we're using this song. So yeah, they're like selling little trinkets, like stealing food, get tossed from trains a lot. The concept of falling asleep on top of a moving train with the only protection of like rolling over just being that you're holding your brother's hand. I mean, like they see when they do get tossed from trains, they like make it so it's, I guess, fine. (laughs) They make it so it's not fine. (laughs) These children were abused. Well, I mean, like, it's not like if they did roll over while asleep, they would instantly die. Like, they have a chance of survival, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, like, imagine you're woken up that way. No. No. I fell asleep (laughs) on a Ryan airplane once. Let me tell you, I thought we were crashing to our death when I was jolted asleep. I have had it happen to me, like, twice now, but I will have, like, because I fall asleep all the time on planes very easily. I am blessed, I know. It's because my parents conditioned me as a small child. They would, like, feed us the airplane sickness medicine as we were getting onto the plane. So, like, the act of taxiing, to this day, like, it makes me so sleepy. What a hot tip. Yeah. Sedate your children and they will forever be gifted. But I will, like, fall asleep and I've had two dreams now where, like, in my dream, I'm, like, aware that I'm on a plane and the plane is crashing. I don't like that. So then, like, I wake up convinced that the plane is crashing. Oh, like, it's like that. I like, jolt awake and then I'm on a plane. I'm like, right, the plane is crashing. Yeah, that's the thing that is happening. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it to nobody. One reason I'm very afraid of lucid dreaming is because I think if I, like, wake up in a dream, I won't be able to figure out how to wake up. Yeah. Like, I'll just, like, be comatized forever because I accidentally start lucid dreaming and I won't be able to do any of the fun shit that people do when they lucid dream because I'd be like, what do I need to do to wake myself up? Like, what if I die and then I'm just dead regardless? Yeah, I have I feel like that'd be worse on a plane. <laughs> where, like, I'll be like, no, this is a dream. I'm definitely dreaming. And then I can't do anything about it. Like, I can't, like, control the dream. I'm just like, no, this is a dream. And that's worse than lucid dreaming in my head. Because it's like, cool, yeah, it's a dream. I still have to do this horrendous thing that I am stuck doing. I just know that it's not real. I like the default is that anything you're doing in a dream is surface level horrendous. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's normally what, like, triggers of, like, the, no, this is a dream. Because I'm like, no, this isn't real. This is definitely dreaming and yet i still have to do <laughs> <And> it yet <laughs> anyway they like find themselves at the taj mahal and become like fake tour guides for a while and just like constantly start scamming tourists which is a great way to live <laughs> they kind of make a life for themselves they like get non-scamming jobs but jamal asks to go back to mumbai now like cause it's no longer bombay and find latika where they discover that she is being raised to be a prostitute by maman the brothers rescue her and salim ends up shooting maman in the head and salim then goes to javid the crime mob boss that had driven through their slum and like works with him now back in their hotel room salim orders jamal to leave him alone with latika and jamal is like no fuck you what salim pulls a gun on him before that they also talk about destiny for a very long time as like literal children it is written Lindsay. they're like it is we're written. destined to be together but yeah so latika like steps out when salim pulls a gun and like persuades jamal to leave the cop then asks like oh did you ever go back and jamal is just like well i'm alive so obviously not (laughs) (laughs) and the cop's also like why would you admit to murder when we're just investigating you for fraud and jamal's like i don't know man you asked me (laughs) (laughs) which is really funny to me like i just like (laughs) i guess they did electrocute him so i would be less inclined to lie but also fair (laughs) 
we're just asking you if you cheated on who wants to be a millionaire they also took drastic measures to figure out if he was cheating on who wants to be a millionaire yeah like immediately drastic like it feels like they didn't really ask him many questions before they went to okay torture time So it's now years later, so Jamal, who is now Dev Patel finally, is working as like an assistant in a call center, like handing out chai, and one of the attendants like makes him sit down to cover his desk while he goes to like call in to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He then uses the database to try and find Latika, but like because he doesn't know her last name, like has no idea how to find her out of like the 26,000 Latikas. But he does find Salim and he like calls Salim and is like, hey, we're offering you a friends and family. it's like one of the funniest things to i know it's not meant to be funny but him being like a friend's an oh shit family (laughs) this movie is just jamal like not thinking through anything and just being like completely instinct and vibe all the time so he just vibed his way through who wants to be a millionaire but the rest of his life is just like we killed someone and then i didn't think through exposing myself as salim's only family member (laughs) (laughs) salim like immediately recognizes his voice which that i really would not be able to do so they meet up jamal like has this fantasy where he just like tackles his brother off of this high rise (laughs) which wild (laughs) especially because there's like no other like fantastical elements of this film (laughs) it's just that But instead of doing that and killing them both, he just, like, punches Salim in the face. And then starts to leave. And I was like, oh, that's all we did here. That's all we're doing. And then they talk and Salim reveals that he's high up in Javid's, like, organization. And Jamal asks, like, as he's leaving, he's like, do you know where Latika is? And Salim is just like, really, dude? Really? <laughs> like, you're still on that? She's gone. Like, get over it. Jamal, like, follows Salim and finds Javid's residence and, like, lies his way in by first being like, I'm the new chef. I'm late. Like, I'm gonna be killed. And they're like, there's no new chef. There's supposed to be a dishwasher delivery. He's like, that's me. I'm a dishwasher. <laughs> I'm being delivered. <laughs> he is let in somehow. And reunites. Like we don't get paid enough. <laughs> he reunites with Latika. And she's just like, why the fuck are you here? Like, you should leave. Like, forget about me. And he's like, I'm in love with you. I can't. And she's like, we no, can need- live on love. We don't need anything else. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, what has he been living on? For years now. Destiny. <laughs> exactly. Like, love is probably just as good as a currency as destiny. The idea that Latik is out there. So once he knows that, mm-hmm. it all falls apart. <laughs> he's like, where do my vibes take me now? He tells Latika that he's going to wait at the train station every day at five for her until she shows up. And Latika does show up. But as they, like, spot each other, she is then captured by Javid's men, led by Salim. He then, like, finally answers the cop's question of, like, why the fuck did you even join the show with, I knew she would be watching. Which, what a reason to join a show. (laughs) Just, like, he, like, didn't actually want to win any money. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I wanted to win the money to, like, provide for her and me. It was just, like, I knew she'd watch. Like, I knew she'd know that I was alive. Like, I don't even know, like, what his plan was. Yeah, like, does she instinctively know where who wants to be a millionaire is filmed? I mean, seemingly she did, so I guess maybe it is, like, a common thing. So, it's now the penultimate question, and it's this question about cricket, and Jamal does not know the answer, but they take, like, a commercial break, and so... Jamal's in the bathroom and the host walks in and is just like, hey, you could be like me, man. Like, you're doing great. Like, I came from nothing. Like, you are going to have the same opportunity. Like, you got this. And Jamal's like, I don't got this. Like, I don't know the answer. And he's like, I believe in you. And leaves. 
And then Jamal walks out of the stall and sees, like, the letter B on the mirror. Jamal decides to use his 50-50 lifeline, which limits it down to B and D, and then picks the actual correct answer of D, which is why the host is like, there's no way this kid's not cheating. Like, I fed him the wrong answer and he ignored me. He's cheating. (laughs) They're about to start the final question when they get the buzzer that the show is out of time, so they'll have to come back the following day. And then as he leaves, he is arrested, and that's, like, the start of why he was being detained. I also understand that, like, not many people actually win the full amount of money, but it's also amazing to me that he's not known for just being, like, the saddest contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire ever. Like, not, like, backstory, because the audience doesn't know that, but, like, he looks like he is in pain every (laughs) single answer that he is giving on the show. I mean, he makes a couple jokes. At one point, (laughs) And then goes back to straight-faced sad. He's like, oh, like, it's getting hot in here, and and Jamal's just like, oh, you're nervous? <laughs> I was like, no, you should be, what? <laughs> the officer then tells Jamal that his story is bizarrely plausible, and ultimately, like, lets him go and lets him finish the show. Meanwhile, like, the news of Jamal's, like, arrest of potential fraud was made the news, so Salim sees Jamal on the news, gives Latika his phone and keys, And it's just, like, you gotta leave, like, go, like, I'll cover for you, like, this is, like, me making up, like, I'm sorry for literally everything I've done to you. And she's just like, okay, bye. I genuinely thought that was just them trying to track her. I instantly knew. These kids are too into destiny. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, when they're like, oh, the lifelines, do you want to phone a friend? I was like, what friend does he have? And I was like, oh, he did just learn his brother's number. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only number I know. (laughs) It was, yeah. Salim... Then goes and, like, locks himself in the bathroom and, like, fills the tub with money and gets in it. Which I don't know why he did that. Just to say that he did. Yeah, sure, Just think that he did. I guess he's not telling anyone anything. To, like, have his blood on the money? I don't really know. Jamal gets the final question and it's the name of the third musketeer and Jamal just, like, straight up starts laughing. And the host is like, oh, so you're laughing, you know the answer, right? And Jamal's like, no, I fucking don't. (laughs) (laughs) He then uses his final, like, lifeline, which is phone a friend, and it calls Salim. And Latika remembers nothing and left it on the seat. And then, like, as it's, like, ringing on the show, she's like, oh, shit, it's probably that, it's that phone. (laughs) Runs back, answers it, and, like, it's very clearly not his brother. And she's like, haha, it's me. And he's like, okay. And I also don't know. (laughs) Yeah, like, he, like, reads out the question, and, like, and Latika's just like, no, I don't know it. And then Jamal just guesses. <laughs> and he guesses right. But once, obviously, when they hear Latika's voice on the show, Javid and his men break into the bathroom and Salim shoots Javid and kills him and then is instantly killed by Javid's men. He and Latika meet up at the train station and kiss. Where he just walks over all the rails? Like, do they not have the electrified third wire, whatever it's called? I guess not. I don't, I don't know how trains work. This is one other fantastical element. <laughs> but the other fantastical element is the ending when we get a dance number to Jai Ho. <laughs> and that is Slumdog Millionaire. St. Trinians. My tweet is, a group of prep school girls execute an art heist for a meager amount of money, and a quiz show also occurs in the background as a side heist. (laughs) Mine is, a girl realizes her dad is shitty, 
and decides to con him into funding a failing school in order to simply make a point. I started watching this movie and was like, I either have no idea what Slumdog Millionaire was even (laughs) slightly about, or like, this is just loosely, loosely, loosely related. And then I was like, Slumdog Millionaire also isn't even about the quiz show. Like, these just have very loose quiz shows in the background to tell a different story. Of some illegal activity, yeah. 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 (laughs) They're very similar and very- Yeah. (laughs) I was really- They're very similar in concept. You're like, this is so specific. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, I watched St. Trinian's, I think in 2009, because- the lead girl in it was in an episode of Doctor Who, and I really liked her for whatever reason. And you're like, let me watch everything else she's been. I did that with Dylan O'Brien at a point, and I was yeah. like, why the fuck did I watch some of these movies? And I also, like, was, I feel like that was also at the point where I was, like, a teen girl into Russell Brand, you know? Okay. So, like, yeah. I also was like, oh, Russell Brand's in this. I'll watch that. So, like, I have, the fact that I had seen this movie before and not Slumdog, so like, from what I knew of Slumdog, I was like, no, this is a good pairing. <laughs> yeah, I truly got, like, halfway through and was like, what's happening? <laughs> and, like, like the they vaguely mentioned a quiz show once, and then I was like, oh, okay, this is gonna be a plot. And it just, like, wasn't, and I was like, mm. <laughs> also what's happening and there's a plot of the person who gets the right answers no one is everyone's convinced she can't get it without cheating i mean she does answer right (laughs) when she trusts herself later on yeah someone has to tell them to trust themselves people may or may not be cheating yeah if using destiny i feel like that should be cheating those questions were (laughs) written by someone who intimately was aware of his story i feel like also destiny had to be a plot of this movie because how else is any of the heist supposed to be how are 12 year olds supposed to set off a bomb in a sewer they're twins this movie came out in 2007 it was directed by oliver parker and barnaby thompson which just like barnaby thompson's the most like uk name and they're both british films that's another thing they're the same movie <laughs> and it was written by Piers Ashworth and Nick Moorcroft. Wikipedia said this is like the sixth movie in like a series of works based on Ronald Serrell. It's not like this is these like just happen to be six movies. Yeah, it's like not like a series. It like yeah. there just happens to be like six movies. There is like a sequel to this one though, but it's based on like British comic strips from 1946 to 1952 about St. Trinian School which is like a gag cartoon of a boarding school with, quote, sadist teachers and delinquent girls. I have no idea the point it was trying to make or what it was satirizing or if it was even anything other than just like, ha, look, bad women. I just know that it occurred. I did not study British cartoonists. Imagine if you did. The other films that were made were in like the 50s and 60s with a reboot in the 80s and then this one being another reboot. The other films apparently were more like centered on the adults than on the like students, which this one was. The like original movies in the 50s and 60s had Alistair Sim, who was like a man like play the female headmistress so the movie continued having that in this 2007 version since it was the 50s i feel like i can only assume it was for transphobic reasons in 2007 it's still for transphobic reasons i was like oh i'm gonna look into this just to like see who the person was that played miss fritton rupert everett is the person that played miss fritton and 
Annabelle's dad. From, like, when he was a child to, like, 15, he was like, I'm transgender, like, I'm a girl, like, I feel more comfortable, like, doing feminine things, etc. And then, like, 15 on was like, I was a fool. Sex change operations are, like, a bad thing for this country. Hormone therapy is a bad thing for this country. Oh, yeah. Children don't know what you're doing. You can express yourself, but, like, doing anything to change your body is too much. Like, children don't know stuff. And then has gone on to do things like actively misgendering Caitlyn Jenner, saying that, like, Ugh. she's just cross-dressing and, like, bad shit like that. Ugh. So not only is it a transphobic portrayal... It is also a transphobic person in the role. I just thought it was bad 2000, mid-2000s jokes. I didn't think it would be bad, bad. This movie was generally at bad reviews for being sexist and not funny. This movie also has a sequel called Trinians 2, The Legend of Fritton's Gold. And first of all, the like promo ad I saw like was like Pirates of the Caribbean. David Tennant's in it? <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Why did I watch the first one and not this one? <laughs> the IMDb like tagline for the second movie is quote The girls of St. Trinian's are on the hunt for buried treasure after discovering headmistress Miss Fritton is related to a famous pirate. Good. Doesn't that mean then like the main chick is related? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's why she's dressed up as the pirate. Into the movie. Annabelle, a wealthy prep school girl and the daughter of an art dealer, is driving with her dad to a new boarding school. On their way, they see, like, a shrunken head on a stick and someone throwing a desk out the window. Annabelle's dad then enrolls her in St. Trinian's, where her aunt, Miss Fritton, is the headmistress. I will say, so I, in my daily life, watch YouTube videos on double speed, because who has time to watch things on normal (laughs) speed? So I bought this film on YouTube to watch, and- it had my setting saved of double speed. So watching that opening in double speed, I was like, what is happening? I was like, everyone's chaotic, but not being this chaotic. And then I realized it was just on double speed. On Annabelle's first day, a girl wearing a uniform that is way too sexualized to actually be a school uniform approaches Annabelle. We find out that she's the head girl named Kelly. They have like a very like sexual atmosphere about them that's then like never addressed in the rest of the movie. So I was like, that's probably not on purpose. That's probably you just being like, women, we're going to make it sexual. Kelly shows Annabelle her dorm. That's like apparently just like the entire school in the attic. And Kelly walks her through like all of the different stereotypes of the school. There's the shavs, which is British slang for like flashy, like lower class. Did you not know that before this? No. (laughs) I keep forgetting you never watched Misfits. It is like I associate you with the show. (laughs) There's the posh toddies, the geeks. The emos who aggressively state that they're not goths and the first years where Annabelle is put. But as like a new girl prank, they pour some sort of goo and feathers all over her. Annabelle goes to shower it off while the rest of the school watches from cameras that they installed in the bathroom and like everywhere around the school. But in the bathroom that they then stream to YouTube. Yeah. Annabelle calls her dad to come pick her up. And when he says no, she like takes her field hockey stick and just hits her phone, which hits a bus that shatters and some random teacher walking by is like, perfect, you're on the field hockey team now. A very Harry Potter moment. We then cut to like a garage where the girls all have like a vodka distillery. Flash, who is Russell Brand, who's like, he's a teacher at the school. I don't know what. I don't think he's a teacher. Oh, he was just 
leading a class. I assume that was a class when they brainstormed the art heist. No. <laughs> he was just having them name crimes. I No, I, like, he was brainstorming stuff, but, like, that was just them hanging. Like, that wasn't a class. That was, like, them brainstorming. He's, like, a mob guy who, like, uses the school as his, like, feeder of illicit things. I thought that he did that and taught. <laughs> I mean, that makes it better. If he's not... <laughs> I was like, he's the question mark criminology teacher. This is like from the comics and not necessarily for the film version of him. But as an adult, Harry is one of the few whom the pupils trust. He helps bottle and sell their gin, distilled in the chemistry lab, and places bets and horses for them. Harry also runs the St. Trinian's matrimonial agency for teenage sixth form girls, setting them up with wealthy men. He even runs a betting scam of his own. He comes in and berates them for packaging bottles of vodka that make people blind after the second glass. And it also killed a 38-year-old. I mean, so, like, bathtub gin is a thing that, and like, moonshine, like, it's not unreasonable that it would make people go blind. <laughs> so Flash says that he wants someone to, like, test their next inventory. So a Russian girl at the school takes a shot and then immediately faints possibly dying probably dying and then everyone at the school moves on and doesn't address it i mean flash is like hey if this ends up in court fuck you or says something like that (laughs) yeah (laughs) a new english teacher shows up and the kids like abuse her and cover her in mud as she's entering so miss fritten takes the new teacher around to see the other teachers one of whom is just letting the girls shoot toy ducks the new english teacher suggests that they all play like a tv quiz show And then it's never brought up again for the next hour. Cut to the Ministry of Education, where the Minister of Education, played by Colin Firth, I don't name him other than the minister, so that's who we're talking about, are talking about getting education back on track, starting with reforming the worst school in the nation, St. Trinian's. So the minister goes to St. Trinian's. He sees Miss Fritton. They, like, had some sort of romantic past, and then he romantically disassociates when Miss Fritton tells him about how she refuses to follow the state curriculum guidelines so the minister comes back to the school with his daughter's field hockey team for a game with saint trinian's it also happened to be annabelle's old school and the minister's daughter bullied her annabelle's old classmates called her annabelle the cannibal which i think it rhymed when they said it with a british accent (laughs) which i cannot do (laughs) so annabelle's classmates were like what's that about and annabelle says i used to eat people and then no one was concerned at all and then she was like i had braces and food would get stuck in them which Which, like doesn't really even make sense no i was like i did not understand that and then i was waiting for you to be like Lindsay, and i have this really obvious explanation that i didn't think of so i'm glad you're also confused i mean like the old it's just like oh you have food in your teeth it's human flesh like i that leap i think they were just like what rhymes with animal animal cannibal animal cut uh, um, nope. <laughs> I'm not gonna try. I can't do a British accent. <laughs> Speaking of accents, Dev Patel's Scottish accent that he, like, busts out very quickly in Slumdog Millionaire, I was like, sir, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> the minister starts lurking around the school, finds, like, a girl in a practical arts classroom who, like, hung herself to the chalkboard like Jesus. 
he finds like the vodka distillery tries some of the vodka and like starts tripping he like literally like it doesn't even take a sip he licks it off of his finger and then immediately like just absolutely loses in a daze yeah stumbles into like a greenhouse watches some iguanas which i don't know why they're there steps onto an anthill of backbiting ants runs away runs into the dormitory where like the posh girls are just like in lingerie making seductive phone calls they explain that they're like phone sex workers that was like when they're like explaining they're like oh yeah these are the posh toddies like they have like a phone sex line or something they say something very quick and i said excuse me oh <laughs> that was when i was looking up what chav was <laughs> <laughs> please watch misfits <laughs> but then ants start crawling up the minister's legs so he takes off his pants and then his phone rings so like the girls turn around and find them in their room with his pants down which is horrendous and then they throw him out the window and like he like lands in a pool and like tries to get out all like suave and i'm like what are you doing so saint trinians wins the field hockey game they like throw a rave trash the hall to which Miss Fritton is sitting in the hall that morning and is greeted by someone giving her a foreclosure notice because she owes $500,000 in pounds in loans. <laughs> which all the girls find out about because they again have hidden cameras everywhere. They're like not even hidden. Like the the camera that's on the dog's <laughs> collar is very clearly a camera. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, 2007 we were in a different time. Annabelle's dad comes back telling Mrs. Fritton that they're going to turn the school into like a boutique hotel and to sell the school to him rather than whatever they're going to do. And Annabelle says that he'd never do that. And then her dad basically like trashes Annabelle on like the camera that they're all watching. Annabelle is now full force in a revenge plot against him. Her whole thing is no fuck my dad. How dare you? And then she's like, okay, fine. Like to piss him off the most, it would be to save this school. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> We then see Flash brainstorming with the girls' like crimes. One of them suggests stealing a rich man's wife and chopping her into pieces little by little until he pays ransom. To which Flash is like, disturbing. I'm not going to write that down. Let's go simpler. <laughs> Kelly then suggests that they steal the girl with the pearl earring to help them pay off the school's debt. The girls go to the art museum to investigate like a way to steal this painting. They find the painting but realize that they can't sneak in until it is revealed that the quiz show is conveniently happening at that art gallery. I do really appreciate the one like dumb posh toddy being like ugh, like it's scarlett johansson and then making like a colin firth joke and like the idea of them making a colin firth joke when colin firth is in the film is very funny to me the dog is also called darcy yeah it's like mr <laughs> darcy and i'm like oh beautiful <laughs> the only thing this movie does well are colin firth jokes <laughs> i just like because the idea that Colin Firth exists in this universe... Not as the minister. Yeah, like, it's just like, but like, no one, it's like, so do you think that the minister just looks suspiciously like Colin Firth? Or is that somebody else? Like, <laughs> is Colin Firth some different person? Colin Firth this? is now the minister of education. <laughs> yeah, like, or is there a different person who has lived Colin Firth's exact life, but is like, Dev Patel? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, like just a completely different person. They devise a plan to sneak into the museum during the quiz show by blowing up an iron gate in the sewers, which two 12-year-old twins are like, we have chemistry tomorrow, we can borrow the explosives to test this out. The girls compete in round one of the quiz show game. St. Trinian's is able to get all the answers correct because the twins stole the answers to the show. The posh girls are the people competing. They're like feeding them the answer. And to ensure that the other team won't win, they give them like mushroom laced tea. So they're well, just like tripping during the competition. That's They only steal the answers the first competition. <laughs> My brain didn't process that these were multiple competitions. Yeah, there was like four <laughs> rounds. My mind clearly just disassociated this <laughs> My mind we're like, we're not watching. Because, <laughs> yeah, it was like the first round they steal the answers. Then they make out with the boys and distract them. And then they give the dosed tea. And then they do something else. Annabelle and Kelsey recruit Flash to pretend to be an art dealer to con Annabelle's dad into buying the painting when they steal it. But they're stopped by the minister's arrival at the school with the press where he comes to bust the school in a scandal. They like quickly cover everything up in the school that could have been possibly problematic, such as drawing a nude man in the art class, which they then change to a bowl of fruit so it can still be slightly phallic. (laughs) Annabelle addresses the minister, telling him that his daughter used to bully her at their old school so that the press then turns on them. And while talking to the press, Miss Fritton's dog, Mr. Darcy, humps the minister's leg, so he kicks it, it goes out the window, it goes into a lawnmower, and then the headline the next day is, is Minister Kills Dog, rather than it being anything about the school. The girls then more or less, like, bound and gag Annabelle in the middle of the night and hold up all of these tools, which are definitely, like, piercing, like, bunch of them are definitely piercing tools and she has no new piercings by the end of it they just wanted to scare her but it is to give her a makeover because what would a 2007 movie be without that we cut to flash acting as the german art dealer talking to annabelle's dad and making a deal for them to sell the painting to each other the saint trinian girls make it to the finals of the quiz show and it's against the minister's daughter's school they then devise their plan to break into the museum the posh girls are competing in the competition Annabelle is watching so she can create any diversions that are needed in the actual room. The goth girls drill a hole into the sewer and send the 10-year-old twins down so they can set up the explosives. They put cigarettes up their nose to filter out the sewer water. I think it was more of a smell thing. Yeah, to filter out, like, the smell. Oh, I thought you meant, like, (laughs) I don't know what you meant. I really don't know what you meant. You were like, filter out the sewer water. I was like, no? (laughs) You're like, we didn't watch the same movie. We, you we can't not edit experiences. your <laughs> They set off the explosives. There's a moment where everyone just thinks that they died and probably would have continued with the plan anyway. The minister notices that St. Trinian's is cheating because someone's like literally sitting on the side. Work smarter, Feeding people answers harder. in the back room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do like how he doesn't like stop it. He just like unplugs it so he can't keep cheating, but he doesn't do anything about the obvious cheating that has occurred before. Before then. Maybe his daughter's team was also cheating. So he's like, I can't bring it up. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this, they'll, they'll look too much into it. <laughs> 
when it's time for Kelly and Taylor and the goth girl whose name I don't know need to like zip line across the top of the quiz show Annabelle starts cheering at like a random spot in the quiz show where the announcer is like your team just lost a point but like okay cheer go ahead and like everyone cheers which the whole zip lining thing was so stupid I wanted to kill the goth girl or emo girl she's not goth she had no reason to get on the zip line and she does it twice to create drama and i feel like once she did it once i'd be like fine you can go first now and i will wait for you yeah. to get off <laughs> since their mics are unplugged the posh girls are now losing by more than double points when the quiz show takes a break chelsea one of the posh girls wants to stop the game show entirely because she won't win and therefore she won't make it onto celebrity love island and the english teacher while shocked that they're cheating somehow is like chelsea you've done all this you're smart and attractive, which is a weird comment to throw in as the teacher. So when they resume, the host... I like how you are just calling Stephen Fry the host. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think you've mentioned it once, that the Stephen Fry. <laughs> I didn't know that until I, like, looked up the movie. <laughs> I don't just instinctively know what he looks like. <laughs> Wild. But now Chelsea, from her own devices, is getting all of the answers correct. Annabelle notices that the minister is getting suspicious, so she, like, sends Miss Fritten in to seduce him and give more of, like, the LSD vodka that they make. He refuses to drink it because he's like, this is obviously a plot. And then Mrs. Fritten asks where their relationship went wrong. And he's like, fine, I don't want to talk about this. I'll drink it. <laughs> Relatable. Kelly and co make it to the room with the painting. They put like heat sensing glasses on, I'm assuming, that allows them to see all the lasers. And Taylor and the goth girl like yoga cartwheel their way around, which seems unnecessary and dangerous, but alas. Kelly takes the painting off. There's apparently no security physically on the painting itself. Like, no alarm goes off yeah. or anything. She just takes it and leaves. It's also apparently like, not bolted to the wall. Uh, um, definitely, there would be security for that. But they just run away. They, like, zip line back, but Taylor and the emo girl, again, go at the same time. So they get stuck on the zip line and the wire comes out before Kelly's able to make it back. The minister's daughter notices because they're being obvious and loud so annabelle decides that she'll hand her her grabs her field hockey pole which she for some reason has at this quiz show and then hits her phone into the minister's daughter the head minister then shoots a zip line back up kelly is able to girl. make her way across huh said head minister, <laughs> the head minister. Said, i met miss frin i, I right I have no idea yeah. what you mean because I genuinely like, lost the plot and I was like, and then you said head minister. And I was like, who? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Colin Firth? <laughs> this is why I can't watch a movie that I don't want to watch. Miss Fritten shoots another zipline across so Kelly is able to make it back through as Chelsea answers the final quiz show question and wins. The next day, the minister wakes up in Miss Fritten's bed. He sees in the paper that the painting has been stolen and Miss Fritten is like, who cares? And makes out with him as the students watch through their hidden cameras. Every time the hidden cameras are used, it's horrendous. Every time. They sell the fake painting to Annabelle's dad that is actually just a knockoff that Miss Fritten made. While the girls, quote unquote, find the painting and the city rewards them 50k and that is saint trinian's i will say good music all right i also like the slumdog millionaire music i just really laughed at the i don't even remember the name of the song but the, the yeah, like the very played, 2009 yeah. one i was like 
this brings me to a specific place in time when I was 12 and not allowed to watch Paper this movie. Paper Planes <laughs> is the name of it by MIA. Brooke, what movie did you like more? Gee, this is a real tough one, Linz. <laughs> I did enjoy Slumdog Millionaire, despite the bitterness of my youth preventing me from watching it. It's a good movie. It's, like, has some problematic things to it. It's very predictable and, like, very melodramatic for no reason. <laughs> like, the whole storyline of him being like, it is written, whoa, hate it. But, like, it's fun. I didn't hate the movie. It didn't upset me. And, like, Dev Patel. I like Dev Patel. It didn't actively upset me in Dev Patel is a low bar. <laughs> but, but I agree. It is that, a Like, bar. literally, that's my reasoning. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like, I liked the movie, and also Death Patel, and also it's not St. Trinian's. <laughs> yeah. Which was just so problematic in so many ways for absolutely no reason. Yeah. Like, the most problematic ways didn't further the plot. Or, like, even a lot of, like, the jokes that are like, ooh, that was probably funny in 2007, but, like, it's not funny anymore. It's like, was that even funny then? <laughs> like, Probably it shouldn't not. have been. Probably not. <laughs> like, I feel like 2007 is also, like, a period of time where, like, people were also, like, made a lot of, like, homophobic jokes. And, yeah. like, this was also included in, in this movie. They didn't lean as much into it as you would expect of a 2007 film about an all-girls school, you know? They could have done so much worse. The bar is very low. It's not a good <laughs> film, but the bar is so low. But yeah, that does it for this episode. If you liked it... Share it with your friend group who all is bonded by their love of Deb Fatel. Do that. Because <laughs> I want to bring those people into my life. So get in touch. That's our demographic of our podcast. <laughs> Deb Fatel enthusiasts. Or follow us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit our website at filmkidsgiantsquids.com. This podcast was recorded by Brooke Hoppy and Lindsay Buttle. Intro music is by the band Polyaction. Transition music is Underground Ambient by Theo Teravainen. Editing by Lindsay Buttle. Until next time, squids.